Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 20, Ezra chapter 10 continued. Well, we're nearing the end of our study of Ezra and we've got some loose ends to tie up. And I'm going to incorporate some thoughts today that perhaps haven't been as self-evident as some of the other ones that have surfaced. So let's begin our continuation of the 10th and final chapter of Ezra by rereading just four verses, verses 1 through 4. Open your Bibles, if you have a complete Jewish Bible, to page 1129. 1129, we're going to read Ezra 10, 1 through 4. Follow along with me, please. While Ezra was praying and making confession, weeping and prostrated before the house of God, a huge crowd of Israel's men, women, and children gathered around him, and the people were weeping bitterly. Shekaniah, the son of Yechiel, one of the descendants of Elam, spoke up and said to Ezra, We have acted treacherously towards our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples of the land. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. We should make a covenant with our God to send away all of these wives along with their children in obedience to the advice of Adonai and of all those who tremble at the mitzvah, the command of our God. Let us act in accordance with the Torah. Stand up, do your duty, for we're all with you. Take courage and do it. This entire chapter is devoted to one matter dealing with mixed marriages. But just because it's one issue doesn't mean that it's simple or it's straightforward. It seems that Jewish men and women living in Judah have married foreign men and women and God finds this an abomination before him that must be remedied. But make no mistake, while it was that some Jewish women married foreign men, the vast bulk of the trespassers were Jewish men who married foreign women. In fact, in the book of Malachi, we learn that some Jewish men went so far as to divorce their Jewish wives in order to marry these Nokri-isha, foreign women. Now, that Hebrew term that I just spoke to you, Nokri-isha, indicates women of another people who were not part of Israel. Essentially, they had no interest in becoming part of Israel. But most importantly, it meant that these women worshipped other gods. Listen to Malachi 2, 11-16. Judah has broken faith. An abomination has been committed in Israel and Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of Adonai, which he loves, by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. If a man does this and presents an offering to Adonai Zebaot, may Adonai cut him off from the tents of Jacob, whether initiator or follower. Here is something else you do. You you cover Adonai's altar with tears, with weeping, with sighing, because he no longer looks at the offering or receives your gift with favor. Nevertheless, you ask, why is this? Because Adonai has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth that you have broken faith with her, though she is your companion, your wife by covenant. 
And hasn't He made them one flesh in order to have spiritual blood relatives? For what the one flesh seeks is a seed from God. Therefore take heed to your spirit. Don't break faith with the wife of your youth. For I hate divorce, says Adonai. Malachi 2 works in conjunction with Ezra 10. So we need to look closely at what's being communicated in these passages. It is that a few different conditions are being described here. First, marriage between a Jewish man and a foreign woman who worships another god. Second, a breaking of faith between a Jewish man and a Jewish wife of his youth. And third, divorce in general. And what we learned in our last lesson was that in Ezra chapter 10, the Hebrew word chosen to describe the union between these Jewish men and foreign women isn't one of the standard ones used for legitimate marriage. Rather, it's yeshav. And it means to cause to dwell. In Proverbs, this word is often used in reference to a relationship with a harlot. Further, when the subject of divorcing these foreign women is suggested, the standard Hebrew words for divorce aren't used. Instead, the word is yitzah, which means to send away. Now, it's a word that can apply to a rebellious son that you kick out of the house. Even a slave you want rid of. So while in its broadest sense, Yetzah speaks of a divorce as meaning the termination of a relationship, any relationship, what's being described doesn't seem to be divorce in the common way we picture it. So between the prophet Malachi and the Torah teacher Ezra, we get the picture that some Jewish men returned exiles brought a foreign woman into his home and had relations with her, thus breaking faith with his Jewish wife, and apparently he kept them both. True marriage to this foreign woman never occurred in this case. She was closer to a mistress. However, some married Jewish men legally divorced their Jewish wife in order to marry the new foreign woman. And yet in another case, a single Jewish male would choose to marry a foreign woman over a Jewish woman. So all of these situations are being contemplated. And then even though in Malachi, God states that he hates divorce, the solution to these illicit marriages that is proposed by a Jewish leader named Shekinah and then ordered by Ezra is divorce. Or better, a disillusion of a relationship or union that God never authorized. What's the difference between true divorce and disillusion of an unauthorized union? It's simple really. In God's eyes, an authorized marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman with Yehovah as the guarantor of that covenant. A covenant by definition involves 
a vow of faithfulness to the covenant terms by those making the covenant. A vow, by definition, invokes the name of the God who shall be that guarantor. Unless those two elements are both present, technically there's no covenant, even if the parties insist there is. So if a Jewish man worships the God of Israel and his foreign fiancé worships a different God, then there can be no common guarantor God. Therefore, no legitimate covenant can be made. In the end, there is no legitimate marriage. And if there is no legitimate marriage, then when the couple splits up, there's no divorce. Rather, it's just the end of a relationship that never should have existed in the first place. Now, before somebody listening here thinks Ezra has just presented them with a loophole in God's marriage laws to dump their current spouse for somebody else, let's take another look at a section of the New Testament that we examined last week. This passage is from the Apostle Paul, and as is often with the case with Paul, it can be challenging to try to decipher exactly what it is he's instructing. And not understanding the Jewish culture of his day, and taking what he says in that context makes it all the more difficult. In 1 Corinthians 7, 10-16, he says this, to those who are married, I have a command, and it is not from me, but from the Lord. A woman is not to separate herself from her husband, but if she does separate herself, she's to remain single or be reconciled with her husband. Also, a husband's not to leave his wife. Now, to the rest I say, I, not the Lord. If any brother who has a wife who is not a believer and she is satisfied to go on living with him, he shouldn't leave her. If any woman has an unbelieving husband who is satisfied to go on living with her, she's not to leave him. For the unbelieving husband has been set aside by God for the wife. And the unbelieving wife has been set aside by God for the brother. Unless your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are set aside for God. But if these unbelieving spouse, if the unbelieving spouse separates himself, let him be separated. In circumstances like these, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to a life of peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? How do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now, there are several instructions for different marriage issues that are addressed in this New Testament passage. But for our purpose, we're going to focus on the one concerning a believer married to a non-believer. Because not only does that seem closest to what we're dealing with in Ezra, it's the one that a large number of present-day Christians contend with. And one of the most common messages that we'll hear from preachers and Bible teachers is that here we see how the coming of Christ changed things. Because while the Old Testament Torah observant Ezra says to dissolve the marriages between believers and non-believers, the New Testament Paul says not to. 
I'm going to blow some holes in that thinking. Here's the thing. The circumstance that Paul is contemplating, this is where I told you you're going to need a lot of thinking today. The circumstance that Paul is contemplating is not of an unmarried believer going out and marrying a non-believer and then regretting it. So now he or she wants a divorce. Rather, it is that two non-believers get married and later one of them becomes a believer. Now I want to define some terms. When dealing with Gentiles, a believer is defined as a person who accepts Christ. A non-believer is essentially either a pagan or an atheist. But remember, there was no such thing as an atheist in the Bible times. didn't exist. However, in the case of Jews, both parties already believe in the God of Israel. So a believer means one who accepts Christ and the other doesn't. But they believe in Israel's God. You with me on that? So Paul is not thinking about a believer in Christ falling in love with and marrying a pagan. That's not what he's talking about. Remember, biblically and spiritually, true marriage is based on a covenant. A covenant must be ratified with a vow, and the vow must always invoke the name of the covenant maker's God. Just because in modern times secular governments have intruded into the arena of marriage and declares that they shall determine if a union is judicially legitimate, that's an entirely separate issue from how God judges things. Originally, marriage was a purely religious matter. It's only in modern times that it has become taken over by secular governments and that is only because of the complex civil and usually financial issues involved in modern societies. So even though a marriage between a believer and a non-believer is seen by the government as legitimate, the believing partner has still broken God's commandment to not be unequally yoked. And one has to question if a covenant with God as guarantor has been created at all. So especially from the zealous early believers standpoint, in other words we're talking about Paul's day, the idea that a believer in Christ would then go out, these would be new believers, all of them were new believers, that they would go out and intentionally marry a non-believer? That's just not in the equation. That's unthinkable. Therefore, we need to recognize that what Paul is dealing with in 1 Corinthians 7 is not the same thing that Ezra is dealing with 
in Ezra chapter 10. Rather, Paul is dealing with married couples who, if Jewish, both believe in the God of Israel. Or if Gentiles were pagans. But at some point in their marriage, one comes to accept Yeshua as their Messiah, but the other one doesn't. And Paul says that the new follower of Yeshua, male or female, may not, on account of their new acceptance of Messiah, leave or divorce their spouse who isn't a follower of Yeshua. However, the one who does not believe in Messiah Yeshua wants to leave the believing one than the believing ones to let them go. Because it's better to have peace. That's the instruction. So the situation in Ezra now is about a Jewish follower of the God of Israel knowingly, intentionally marrying a foreign woman who follows a different God altogether. It's not about two married Jews or Gentiles disagreeing on who the Messiah is, which is the essence of the Apostle Paul's issue. And so as to not leave any confusion, I'm going to use now modern terms for Paul's instruction as it would apply to us today. If two people get married and neither are Christians and then later on one becomes a Christian, the Christian may not leave or divorce the non-Christian because as a result the marriage gets difficult. Except for the cause of marital unfaithfulness, generally meaning adultery. However, if the non-Christian in that Relationship wants to leave or get a divorce, they should do so and the Christian should not try to prevent it. At this point now, I can't resist taking a momentary detour to share with you something that I wish I had understood when I was much younger, a lot earlier in my walk with Christ. And it involves what theologians call levels of inspiration. Now this is where you got to really hunker down. Pay real close attention. Some of, some of you are going to get real bothered by this. What this means is, is that most Christian theologians acknowledge that not everything said in the Bible is to be taken as equally inspired or uniformly authoritative. Who says what matters a great deal. Easy example of this. We have wicked people like King Saul whose words we certainly would not take on the same level of divine truth and authority as say an oracle of God delivered through the prophet Isaiah. Let me show you what I mean in the context of what we've just been dealing with. Notice that Paul divides his instructions regarding marriage and divorce in 1 Corinthians 7 into two distinct groups. Group 1 
is verses 10 and 11. And in them, Paul says, this is from God. It is the Lord's commandment that he is speaking. But in group 2, which is from verses 12 onward, he expressly says, this is what comes next is not from the Lord. It's from himself. It is what he personally thinks about the subject. Paul is defining two levels of inspiration and authority and he's setting a boundary between them. Now I want you to think on that for a moment. Because when we study Paul's letters, we find that he doesn't usually claim that what he's telling us is from the Lord. Rather, it is but Paul telling us his mind and so he is issuing instructions to believers on a number of important subjects based on that. Now, in no way am I implying that the writings of Paul aren't inspired of God. They certainly are. But even, if, but even he is very careful to make a distinction between what his own insightful thoughts might be versus what the Lord God Himself says. Two different levels of inspiration and authority. And this is something that we must always consider when dealing with what regular human beings in the Bible, such as John, Paul, Peter, Jude, James, all the others say, versus the direct quotes and instructions of Christ and of His Father, Jehovah. Again, what we are encountering is two distinct levels of inspiration and authority. Not no inspiration and authority and then inspiration and authority. Levels of it. Again, God's, Christ's authority is probably, well, obviously, a higher level of inspiration than authority than Paul's, Peter's, Ezra's, King David, Samuel's, any utterance of a typical human being. Thus, for instance, if we study God's Word, if we were to ever find a directive of God or Yeshua that seems to be in conflict with what any human biblical character or writer might say is truth, then without doubt we must accept the higher authority and utterance of the divine God over the merely inspired utterance of a human being. Or as I think is more the case, in reality, we must take what the human being says within the confines and context of what God says is truth, not the other way around. We don't define what God says by what the bevy of human being writers say. We define what those human writers say within the context of what God says is truth. Reading and interpreting the Bible any other way 
is what creates all these erroneous doctrines and misguided traditions and confusion. So with that understanding, now it is clear that what Ezra is about to order in the dissolution of unions between these returned Jewish exiles and foreign pagans is not at all in conflict with what Paul says about marriage and divorce. And neither of them is in conflict with God's laws and commandments on the subject. They all work just fine together. Now, let's read a little bit more of Ezra chapter 10. We're going to read verses 5 through 17. Page 1129 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Ezra stood up and he made the chief Kohanim, the chief priest, the Levites in all Israel swear that they would act according to what had been said. And they took the oath. Ezra then left his place in front of the house of God and went to the room of Yochanan, the son of Eliashiv. And after going there, he neither ate food nor drank water because he was mourning over the treachery of the exiles. A proclamation was issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem that all the exiles were to assemble in Jerusalem and that whoever didn't come within three days in answer to the summons from the officials and leaders would forfeit all he owned and himself be banished from the community of the exiles. All the men of Judah and Benjamin assembled in Jerusalem within the three days. It was the twentieth day of the ninth month. All the people sat in the open place in front of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of the heavy rain. Ezra the priest stood up and addressed them. You have acted treacherously by marrying foreign women and thus have increased Israel's guilt. Now therefore, make confession to Adonai, the God of your ancestors, and do what will please him by separating yourselves from the peoples of the land and from the foreign women. In response, the whole assembly cried out loud, Yes, our duty is to do as you have said. But there are many people, and it's the rainy season. We can't stay out here in the open. Also, it's not the work of a day or two, for there are many of us who have committed this crime. Let our leaders represent the whole community. Let all those in our cities who have married foreign women appear at prearranged times, accompanied by the elders and judges of each city, until our God's fierce anger over this has been turned away from us. Only Yonatan, the son of Azel, and Yahaziah, the son of uh, Tikva, supported by Meshulam and Shabtai, the Levite, opposed this. The exiles did as agreed. Ezra the priest chose heads of their father's clans by name and they began their sessions to look into the matter on the first day of the tenth month. They finished dealing with all the men who had married foreign women by the first day of the first month. The final recorded words of Shekinah in verse 4 were directed to Ezra. He encouraged Ezra to stand up, be courageous, do his job as their leader. Shekinah proposed that all the people make a covenant 
to send away the foreign females that the Jewish men had brought into their homes and, at least in their eyes, had married them. But it was Ezra who had been given authority by King Artaxerxes to be in charge of every matter concerning the Jews, and that included being in charge of the priesthood. So Ezra stepped forward and struck while the iron was hot. He demanded that all the people immediately swear to do what Shekinah has just proposed. Three different groups swore an oath to execute what now changed from a suggestion to a command. The priesthood, the Levites, and the Jewish lay people, meaning every layer and level of Jewish society, vowed to send away the foreign women and their families. Ezra then left the public area. He went to what was probably a side chamber to the temple. And there he continued mourning and he fasted as well. Now, although no prayer is specifically mentioned, it's unimaginable that he didn't pray profusely. Now, this mention of fasting and mourning assures us that Ezra wasn't merely putting on a public display for effect. And then once leaving the stage, was self-satisfied with the results, and so he just resumed normal life in private. This man was deeply moved. And he was devastated by Judah's condition before God in this horrendous sin of mixed marriages and he saw himself as equally liable. I mean, what a great example of godliness and righteousness is this man. And his words and his actions deserve our attention. But did he do everything perfectly? No. But like David... His heart was always towards God. However, Ezra, unlike David, was a diplomat. And he showed great wisdom by being patient and allowing um, an established, known leader of the lay people of Judah to come to the conclusion that the dissolution of these mixed marriages, as painful as it would be, was the only suitable course of action. Once that lay leader convinced the people of its necessity, then Ezra merely led a religious ceremony to formalize the agreement with a congregation-wide vow. Now Ezra seems to have remained in the background for a while in this matter, only naming some officials to oversee it. So in verse 8 it is said that a proclamation was sent out for all members of the Jewish community to come to Jerusalem to resolve the issue of mixed marriages. The people had to appear within three days. So Ezra was not about to let this matter sit and get stale. Judah wasn't that large. Geographically, at this time, it was quite small. So getting the word out, getting there within that short time span wasn't impossible. But it certainly gave the aura of urgency and no doubt that was the intention. Plus a goodly portion of the Jews lived in or immediately near Jerusalem at this time. Now it's interesting that it is said that the officials and leaders issued the proclamation. 
This fits very well with how Ezra had chosen to handle this matter. That is, rather than he appearing to be a a dictatorial force, it's that the people's own community leaders had fully bought in. So this carried a lot of weight. There was a serious consequence, though, for refusing to show up. One would lose all they owned and then be banished from the Jewish community. It's instructional to note that where in the complete Jewish Bible and most other English translations used, uh, the word uh, forfeit is used to indicate the loss of personal property to be suffered for disobedience to the summons. But in Hebrew, that word is harem. And if you'll think back to earlier lessons, you might recall that harem is the centerpiece of holy war. And it involves the inevitable spoils of war, assuming victory, of course. A closer English translation of that word, better than forfeit, is ban. And the idea of ban is that the spoils of war are removed from the possession of humans. Instead, now, it's given to God. Generally, in a holy war, that meant destroying and or burning the spoils. Somewhat like an offering on the altar. However, it was not a sacrifice. Well, by Ezra's time in history, the term harem had taken on a slightly different twist. It still carried a holy tag upon it. And it still involved confiscating items from the, from the private sector of society. However, instead of these things being burned up, these items were turned over to the temple, effectively meaning the priesthood. So what is being communicated by saying anyone who doesn't come to the meeting is going to have their property forfeited is that their property is going to be taken and given to the temple authorities. This really shouldn't sound strange to us. In the secular world, if a person doesn't pay their property taxes or uses a car in a crime, those items can be legally forfeited and confiscated. But to whom are they given? Usually the government authority who has jurisdiction. And they can dispose of them or they can even use them as they see fit. Same idea here in Ezra. But the more fearful threat was being banned from the community of exiles. That means that they would have to leave Judah or at the least move to a foreign majority controlled village. And in those days, you didn't just back up the moving van and go. This was a life-altering experience. Therefore, all the men of Judah and Benjamin were told assembled on the day of assembly as ordered. But now a couple of important points. The word all in Hebrew is kol. Kol, while indeed meaning all or everything, is a general rather than a precise term. By no means is it intended to indicate 100.00%. So when we encounter the term all, coal, 
in the Bible understand that it does not mean everything without exception. It can mean vast majority. It can mean nearly all. And only in rare cases, and only if the context makes it unmistakable, can it mean 100%. In our case, 100% of the men of Judah and Benjamin did not come to Jerusalem, but the attendance was near unanimous. The second issue is when this verse speaks of the men of Judah and of Benjamin. This is not speaking of tribes, of people. It's speaking of territory, of districts. Under Babylon and now Persia, there was no province or district of Benjamin, only of Judah. However, the Jews were of course aware of territory that had been historically given to Benjamin as apart from Judah. Thus the Jews could speak to one another about the territory of Benjamin and understand among themselves what was intended. And we are specifically told that this day of reckoning was the 20th day of the ninth month. The ninth month is Kislev, which roughly corresponds to December on our modern calendars. It was winter, so it was cold and it was rainy. And I can tell you, from the extensive time I've spent in Israel in the wintertime, that can be a very damp, bone-chilling cold. Remember, Jerusalem is at about 2,500 feet of elevation. It snows nearly every year there. A couple of years ago, the snow was so heavy and deep that it brought this city of nearly three-quarters of a million to a halt. Businesses and attractions were closed. Roadways were impassable. People were in physical danger because only some homes even had heat. And when it rains in the winter, it's a cold rain. And it can be a torrent. So all these thousands of Jews meeting in Jerusalem outside with no shelter in the winter were doing so at the worst possible time of the year. Somehow I think that's exactly what God intended to make the most impact. So verse 9 says they were trembling out in this cold rain, also trembling because of this matter of the mixed marriages. In other words, they were trembling on account of earthly physical phenomena, rain, that affected their goose-bumpled flesh, and they were trembling in their guilty souls. They were in fear at the consequences that they were that were about to happen as a result of their terrible sin against God of mixed marriages with heathens. Well, at the appointed moment, Ezra appears. He addresses the gathering. I can just hear the silence as he rises. The Jews, huddled in a huge, shivering mass of humanity, standing under dark skies, soaked, cold, straining to hear Ezra as he reminds them why they're here. Somehow, this setting is perfect 
in all of its dreariness and misery for what's taking place. This is not a pep talk. Ezra is not telling the people what they want to hear. He's not telling them about God's love for them. Or that God has changed His mind. He's heaping shame upon them. He's reminding them of their guilt. Of the grave consequences of their evil intents and their wicked actions. You know what? If this took place in a church today, the pastor would quickly have no congregation. Because most modern Christians have no interest in a fiery speech of hellfire and damnation, let alone one that meddles in somebody's personal life. You know it's true. We all want a light-hearted comedy routine telling us we're okay before God. We don't want to hear about our sin and guilt before the Lord. No way. No, there's an unyielding standard that we are expected to adhere to. We just want to hear about God's mercy and grace. I mean, who wants a God that would punish us for our trespasses against Him? We want a buddy. We want a kindly grandfather for a God who looks the other way, tells us not to worry, He understands. I have news for you. The Jews standing in the temple courtyard before Ezra weren't that different from you and me. This was a day that they and their children would remember forever and not with any fondness, I might add. They didn't come because they wanted to be there. They came because they were ordered to be there. Backed up with a threat that if they didn't show up, they'd lose everything. Everything they possessed with excommunication to boot. They weren't given a choice of venues or messages. In verse 10, Ezra says that by marrying foreign women, and again, this is about Worshipping false gods has got nothing to do with race or ethnicity. Israel's guilt has been increased. Note that is not that Israel went from not guilty to guilty because of these mixed marriages. Rather, they were already guilty. It's only that this particular trespass was the straw that broke the camel's back. Because in God's eyes, it was the worst of the worst. Why? Because this sin is directed at Him. Did these mixed marriages cause direct harm to those who were engaged in it? Not usually. But it did cause harm towards God in that it represented fundamental unfaithfulness between the Jews and him. The Jews' spiritual husband was the Lord. And they had committed adultery. 
against their spiritual husband with people who gave their allegiance to other gods. The Bible calls this a high-handed sin. Ezra demanded that the people make confession in public. And then, equally publicly, they were to make a change. First, stop associating with the peoples of the land meaning the foreigners who had moved into Judah and were worshipping false gods. Second, send away these foreign marriage partners. I mean, wow, does this ever go against the grain of modern believers? Too often, we only want to go so far as confessing our sins to God, but certainly only in private. Occasionally, we might do it in public, but only in the sense of saying something general and obscure like, God, forgive me for my sins. The larger point I'd like to make is that it is the second part of this process that is usually left out in our time. Real, physical, physical, tangible change. And in some cases, it can be a very painful action. Ezra didn't just ask for confession. That was pretty easy. Simply feeling bad, regretting our sins, is nice. That's only part of what God requires of us for a renewed harmony with Him. Our confession has to be accompanied with repentance, which has to result in action. This action often results in having to right a wrong, not just to vow never to do it again. God didn't only require the Jews to stop marrying foreign women from now on. They had to face the horrendous choice of ending those relationships that had already been established or remaining separated from God if they didn't. What a choice. Understand, some of these marriages were decades old. Some produced children and then grandchildren. Probably many, if not most, were happily married. They loved one another. They had found a way to accommodate and tolerate each other's gods. Feeling guilty wasn't good enough. Praying and confessing their wrong wasn't good enough. Promising the Lord sincerely never to do it again wasn't good enough. The only acceptable solution was to dissolve those families and send those foreign wives, mothers, grandmothers the children, the grandchildren produced by them away. What a horror. How unfair to those who were innocently affected. But there we have in a nutshell the disastrous nature of sin. All the unintended consequences of our sinful actions. The guilty and the innocent get hurt. I'm going to try to finish up the book of Ezra next week.